Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tej Talks podcast. And on this show, we have Cove Properties, who are deal sources. Now, this is going to be a, a kind of a deal sourcing masterclass. I kind of ask questions that are, you know, all over the kind of journey or process of a deal sourcer. So if you are interested in sourcing a deal or becoming a deal sourcer, which is a good entry into property, then check this out. The guys sourced over 62 deals in 12 months and 600 investors on their mailing list or on their list in 12 months. They use social media quite heavily, which we speak about, but also we talk about, well, how to find deals, how do you find investors and how do you balance it all up? And well, which one do you do first? So deal sourcing, deal sourcers, this is for you. Cove Properties, Jez and Dan, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thanks for having us, Tej. No problem. You know what? This is this is a good one because like we've all met each other and I find the problem with like a lot of podcasts is that like, well, mainly because of COVID and the distances, I don't get to meet people. Um, and so it's kind of like, it's nice when you know people from the physical days, shall we call them, um, to kind of interview them. <laughs> the physical days. <laughs> the good old days, because you kind of know them a little bit better, right? And you spent time together. And I think the last time we were together was at Rich Little's event in Blue Oak event, right? In January yeah. last year? Yeah, last year. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, last year. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it, to think like <laughs> what's happened since then? Like that was like one big event and then everything went to shit. So what I want to talk about today, you know, for the people listening is, you know, you're both deal sources and you buy your own properties as well. But I want to, you know, for people who are interested in deal sourcing, I really want to take them on a, like a masterclass of sourcing because I get asked about it a lot and I can only say so much about half of it. But the other half is, you know, what deal sources are doing every single day. And actually you're probably a lot more active than, you know, kind of a normal investor when you're kind of sourcing deals and you probably have some little tricks and tips up your sleeve. So I really want to focus on that. And then I kind of want to talk about you being business partners and also social media, because if people haven't seen the pink, the pink and purple or the pink and blue? Pink and blue. <laughs> the pink and blue, which is a very nice pink. When I saw you both wearing the top, I was like, I want one of those. That is a nice pink. Um, I want to kind of talk about social media. So before we get into that, individually could you just briefly tell us you know what you were both doing before property and then how you got into property jez you want to start yeah of course so my background is charity and corporate sector um as well as i've run a few businesses so i've got kind of got a mixed background but it's mainly it was mainly focused on working with kind of large corporates managing um accounts of up to the last one I managed was like six million pounds. And so like project management and account management, um, but always on the sort of working within the charity sector and w- managing accounts in the corporate sector, if that makes sense. Um, I've also run a few hospitality businesses as well, including my own. The And the last sort of job that I had before going full-time in Cove last year, um, I was working for... Uh, a charity and running their corporate and fundraising um, team. So, yeah, it's yeah, always it's been, always I suppose, been, I suppose that, that business, business development and fundraising space, um, which which I think really has given me a, a really great kind of breadth of experience, um, you know, working in sort of large and small organisations, um, which has kind of given me a great set of knowledge and, and skills for you know running a running a business because you know you're seeing how you know I I've worked with people like Vodafone and like Deutsche Bank and people like that so I've seen how these huge companies operate and then it's taking some of those learnings and putting them into you know running a, a kind of like startup hmm. Dan yeah so my background's architectural so I'm um, I've done all my seven years of architectural training to be be able to be called an architect um i i worked in a, a company in newcastle called pod architects i went there after my uh, master's in architecture um 
yeah, it was it was really interesting because I think I also have, have a bit of a spark for for business because I remember introducing CGIs, which are like high end visualizations and like VR and stuff into the practice and creating another income stream and that sort of thing really excited me like so much. So I, I always knew I had an entrepreneurial spirit to me, you know, and a, and a drive. So I think you know, and with my background in, in architecture, we're working on a lot of residential property. So I was working with developers all the time, you know, working with the likes of Bellway Home, Miller Homes, who are some of the biggest house builders in the Northeast, working with like, you know, one-off clients doing, you know, football, football house, uh, footballers' houses and uh, you, even just smaller jobs as well, you know, like conversions into flats and different bits and bobs. And yeah, I absolutely loved it. But I was just yearning for something a bit more and I, and I always wanted to set up my own business and do my own, my own kind of thing really. So Cove was a, was an opportunity there that kind of allowed us to, you know, take up those passions and, and start something. It's quite interesting how we met actually. Um, Cause we met in the Facebook groups, you know, the property groups and um, Jez was looking for uh, an invest. He was looking to an investment property, and he wanted some advice on where to look in in Newcastle. And it was one of those things where I remember just thinking, "I'm just going to reach out to people and just get myself out there," because I, I didn't really have any profile or anything at that point. So I, was, so I reached out, and we went for a pint when you when you could actually go for a pint. <laughs> and um, and yeah, he was like, "Well, you know, I, I just gave as much value as I could, and I said, look, these are the areas that I would invest in.' You know, tip." take that advice and ha- have a look at, into those areas yourself. And he was like, well, do you want to help me find, find a property? And, you know, we'll ca- I'll kind of give you a fee for it. And I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. And that's actually how it started. We, you know, we met up again and then we were in a coffee shop and we were just, we just started to brainstorm and map out actually, you know, with you, with, with Jez living in London, me living in Newcastle, there could be a real opportunity here to make a business model. Um, and yeah, that was that was the beginning, really. And it's mad thinking back, actually, now. And, you know, like looking for business partners or JV partners, as, as people might kind of call it, although I think this is, I'd call this more business partners. How did you know that, I suppose you never fully know, but how did you know that you could work together? Like, was it gut? Was it kind of actually looking at each other's, I don't know, CVs as such? Like, yeah, what kind of made you think, yeah, you know what, this could work and this could be a long term successful thing? probably naivety thinking about it. <laughs> complete just j- jumped in didn't even I don't know we were just very 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 lucky because we're absolute chalk and cheese but we we, we both possess strengths um in different areas so as a team we work really well together um but we didn't do any sort of like due diligence <laughs> or any sort of testing to see if we, we were compatible we just jumped in you know, so I mean, probably not. Probably more of a gut. It's probably more of a gut thing. Then I, I think. Yeah. I think that's what it was. I think you know, we we got a good sense of each other. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think, and I've been reflecting on this because I was actually listening to a podcast the other day talking about uh, essentially a questionnaire you can do with new business partners and it's like a set of questions to make sure your values align and i was thinking oh that'd be that we you know we should we should have done that that would be good um so i think it was more of a gut but i think that actually we were we had a you know a, a similar set of kind of drive and ambition i think it was very clear early on that we had a similar work ethic which i think is a huge thing because you know i've heard of business partnerships imploding because you know one's putting loads of hours in and loads of graft in and the other one's not doing anything and i would also say that we are very kind of proactive and we very much have a um an approach to get stuck in and and start doing you know which really which really works early on when you know when we need things to, to ramp up quickly so i think there was just that we both had a similar level of commitment and drive to things. So I think that that, that really stood out mm. Um, mm. and probably showed that this was, this could work. But yeah, I think a lot of it was, as Dan said, a lot of it was just naivety. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you said you're chalk and cheese. So one of you is, you know, Dan, you're in the investment area, I assume. And Jeremy, you're just, you are in London. So like, how do you decide on splitting the roles? I mean, there's an obvious sort of split, I suppose, because one is local, one isn't. But 
I mean, how, yeah, how do you split the roles? What do you do each? I think it will help people understand maybe in their partnerships what kind of things they could look to split. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think it's not really area dependent because, I mean, Jez deals with a lot of the project management side and that's, that's you need to, that's kind of based in Newcastle, you know. You would think Jez living in London would do the investors and, and um I would do the project management, but it's actually the other way around because we work to each other's strengths mm. rather than, you know, location. Um, Jez is very, very methodical and organized and structured. And I think you need to be in project management. Um, and I'm, I'm very creative and sales, uh, sales orientated. So for me, you know, well, for both of us, you know, pushing those deals forward, you know, coordinating them, getting, getting the sale agreed with the investor, is my kind of strength so we've kind of focused on the areas that we're good at really as as a, as a focal point we have shifted though like you know yeah. originally it was a little bit more um location specific like when for the last for the majority of the last year i've been main, more focused on the investor side um because that is location independent um but we've now like as of recently transitioned to pushing everything sales related to to Dan and I'm more ever, uh, in terms of operations and project management because we because we've we we've got to a sort of certain size now that we needed to be more delineated um so we've you know we've put more of a i suppose what you would call a, a more of a corporate structure on now because mm-hmm. we were in that kind of very much that messy startup phase when essentially we were doing a bit of everything which wasn't now working with the sort of size of and the amount of projects that we are working on. Um, but I think as Dan says, I think the, the, the important thing of what we've done is it's less so focused on the location. It's more focused on what are we, what are we good at and what are our strengths? Um, and actually we did um, as part of that sort of thinking recently, we, we actually did um, a personality like test. So one of the wealth dynamics ones, so just to help clarify and I suppose in some confirm what our sort of strengths are and um, to help some of that thinking around, you know, what areas of the business we should be um, working on and what we should be overseeing. Mm, I like that. Yeah. That's in, yeah. I mean, I definitely think location, like you said, and would have an impact on, but it's interesting to hear how it did differ and, and also how it changes as well. And the strengths and weaknesses are more important than necessarily the location. So I think that's something that people can think about now. I think also, can I, sorry, just, I think another point to really say is that obviously we've started this business. We've really accelerated this business uh, over these last 12 months of being in the pandemic. It's a really interesting question as to how we might have structured it. If we weren't having to be, you know, within a, a sort of lockdown restriction, because we've had to make it, like really remote and work with technology and making it sort of um yeah location independent because i've you know i've not really been to the northeast that much in the last 12 months because of the uh, lockdown and and pandemic and stuff so out of necessity we've kind of made it made it work as well and because of because of that lockdown and and now we've got this model when we are reliant on um, the technology and we are pretty much a remote business. And, you know, Dan is based in Newcastle, but actually he doesn't need to actually be there because he's not doing anything on the ground. We've now got a team who does everything on the ground and Dan could be, Dan could be in London. It didn't, it wouldn't actually matter. Maybe I should go to Spain for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Top up the tan, man. Yeah. I'd, I'd be in Spain, get the vitamin D in, forget, forget being in bloody cold, you know, rainy England. That's actually really interesting. How, Cause you know what? Deal sourcing is something that I feel anyway. And that there's definitely discussion to have here. I think a lot of people initially think, well, you have to be in the area because there's a lot of face to face, there's a lot of relationships, builders. I mean, bloody hell, you can't leave them alone, but you're doing it remotely. So before we get into actual deal, source, you know, what, let, let's talk about deal sourcing first, and then we'll talk about how to do it remotely. Cause I think there's going to be some big lessons in there for people. First question on deal sourcing. Why well, why did you pick deal sourcing? I think that um, we just saw a bit of an opportunity to to do something in that space. And, you know, 
there wasn't that many people doing it uh, in and around the northeast, and, and we just saw, yeah, a, an opportunity to kind of fill. And you know, it's, it's funny Dan mentioned that cafe session because that was really early on in our kind of relationship. And we sat down and pretty much mapped out the business over the next kind of two years. And we mapped it out going, we're going to systemize this to pretty much try and run with, without us. So it was very strategic what, what we've done and how we've approached it. And that was, that was pre pandemic, obviously. Um, so it was very intentional that we would be using like technology and VAs and yeah, for it to essentially work work remotely for us to not be in the business not to be dependent on us yeah i think as well you know it was another session we did where bought this massive whiteboard and and we literally spent the whole day strategizing on what's our you know what's our one year three year five year ten year goals and you know our our long-term vision it's more it's something more than sourcing you know it's something beyond that it's it's you know, to to create a better housing sector, to, you know, um, there's such a disparity in terms of homelessness and equality of empty homes and substandard conditions. We want to do lots of things. And it's like how, firstly, how are we going to get there? You know, because you can't just, we talked at one point about, you know, doing new build schemes and creating our own communities and doing all, and I know that sounds like, you know, crazy and, and maybe a long, you know, a, a long amb- ambitious goal, but, you know, we planned what are we going to do year one? What are we going to do year two? What's year five going to look like? What's year 10 going to look like? And I think, you know, sourcing allow, is allowing us to get to that that long-term goal. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think a lot of people, you know, do a similar thing, which is you sourcing to get to a long-term goal. Whether or not most people go to the level of planning you did is something I doubt, and I really like that you did that because it also allows you as business partners to actually sort of align goals, but also have your different individual goals potentially kind of within that. So that's a really good activity to do. Now, you know, sourcing, sourcing full stop. So whether you're doing it to sell the deal on or whether you're doing it for yourself can be time intensive, can and probably is, if we're looking at the deals we're kind of doing, you know, full of rejection. So when you like for people listening what are some of the key things that you know people should be doing at the start of their sourcing business or sourcing journey are there common things that people don't do at the start or they get wrong they should do i would if i was to start from scratch i would literally ask to work for free for other companies and literally give as much value as you can to another company um and I don't mean by co-sourcing, I mean by like working, doing viewings for them, going on site and visiting, um, sequencing, you know, and doing videos for the clients and doing, you know, just basically helping as much as possible and learning all the different things that go on, the different sequences, the the potential pitfalls, the things to look out for. Because, uh, you know, this, I, I just I talked about this in a, in a clubhouse last night. They're sourcing a property there's there's obviously risk involved in in terms of you know you've got to know how to how a valuer works and how how to look for comparables and what to what to look for in the refurb and look, understanding the different uh, metrics to a property and what you're going to do to that property to add that value but then there's the refurb itself and that's a if you're doing that if you're doing the full end to end that's a whole level of risk you know you've got you know cdm regulations you've got building control you've got planning you know it depends what you're doing to it but you know even if you just turn it into from a two bed to a three bed or you, you've got a loft conversion and you you want to make it to regs to, to add a bedroom in or you're doing you know you're taking a chimney breast out whatever it is there's complexity there's rules and you've you've really got to be careful um and i think a lot of sources they'll go on these courses and they're not equipped for that kind of um understanding and that's it they'll they'll try something it'll not work out they'll maybe have a bad experience and that'll put them off um so i would just i would just absolutely shadow as many people as i could and just give as much value make myself indispensable in terms of just giving and then you will literally if you do that for six months you'll learn a lot i i think yeah that's a really good tip 
And, you know, like, it, maybe there's a cultural thing. I know, like, in America, they do it all the time. Like, go get free internships and learn and stuff. And I think, like, I think people maybe don't kind of want to do that enough. I don't know if it's a sense of entitlement or just whatever it is. But, like, for example, I'm try- I'm learning how to, you know, build from land, do developments. If a developer offered me some sort of role and it was free, it was an hour, a couple hours a week, whatever, I would do it. And you might say, what, but you've got a portfolio, you've done it. Why do you need to do that? I would say, because I'm still a total beginner in that field. Yep. I would a hundred percent do that. I know you two would for any other thing you wanted to learn, even if you've sourced, you know, 10 or a hundred deals, whatever it is. So I think there's something humbling in doing that, but also the knowledge, like you said, I mean, it's incredible what you can learn from just being around someone and hearing those kind of conversations. And Jez, did you want to add something to that? I think I was going to say um, the thing for me, I think the thing that I, I don't know if a lot of people get it wrong, but I, a lot a lot of people, I think it's just in property in general, they focus on all the fluffy stuff. They focus on, you know, their branding and their website and their business cards and all of that kind of stuff, which is obviously massively important as three you know as we sit around the room and we're three big marketing and branding geeks i would say (laughs) but that is obviously massively important but what is ultimately important is getting those deals that i mean that needs to be an absolute the absolute focus of a deal sourcer is getting those deals um and everything dan said is is true because i think there isn't there isn't enough focus on the project management side and the knowledge of of essentially property problems because that's what you know part of the due diligence process is is about spotting those problems but ultimately as a deal source so it's about a pipeline of deals if you get the deals the investors will follow yeah i love that and, and something i'm doing recently is like asking myself when i do my to-do list i say are these tasks getting me closer to my goal for this year aka you know are they going to find more deals are they going to make more profit? And I think it's a question that everyone should ask themselves, which is, is this getting me closer to my to where I'm going? Because if it isn't, or if it is, but it's low priority, you know, should we outsource it? Should, you know, blah, 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 things like that. So yeah, really good points there. Now, deal sourcing. Obviously, there's the basics of compliance uh, that we're not going to go through that people can find out. You know, we'll put it in the show notes. When you set up your business at the start, because I think sometimes courses can, you know paint deal sourcing as an easy and quick way into property. Um, tell me, is deal sourcing easy and quick? You know, how long did it take to get your first deal? Talk to me about, yeah, easy and quick. Definitely not We're easy. We're both laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely not easy, definitely not quick. Um, it took us a while to get to get our first deal. And I think, yeah, it's once you, once you crack it, it becomes easier and easier. But then as you grow... The more, there's more and more challenges, you know, because you want to hit more deals and you know you want to keep the pipeline coming in. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's definitely not as easy as people think. Um, I think people think that they can just do it on the side of a job and and make six grand a month, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, which a lot of these kind of training courses kind of promote, can can promote a little bit. Um, but I, it's definitely not like that at all. I mean we've treated this as a full-on business you know we, we both left our jobs for it and totally committed to it and i think you can do it you can do you know you can do it on the side um but you still got to treat it as a business you know you still you still got to um i believe hire hire the staff and, the, and have the processes and have the capacity to be able to um deploy and, and get get those deals coming in you need to have strict um techniques to get different types of, of leads coming in you also need really really streamlined processes and um you know crm and d- different different programs to help you and guide you and and you know so you're not doing it all yourself i mean th- i don't understand how how people can do it all themselves and do 40 hours a week you know yeah it i, I don't know how people some people do it superheroes i don't know how they do it i, I could never do it just to dive deeper on two things you said there um, the first one, which is a quick, easy answer, is how long in months or weeks did it take to get your first deal? I think it was like five months. And then did you get paid at five months or did no. we get paid? No. No, because we got paid when uh, when we first, well, we've only just recently changed our policy, but essentially when we first started, um, we only got paid on completion of the 
of the conveyancing. So there's a long, there was a long time lag. So five months to get the deal and it could have been three months to get paid. Yeah. Yeah. And your fee on that was 3k. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just for people listening, work out the hourly rate of that single deal. And that will give you the answer if deal sourcing is easy. I mean, I'll answer that question. The other question you've asked as well in a different way. So the, the way that Dan and I have managed to get to the position that we're in, obviously uh, we have been very strategic, but you know, we, we were, we had full-time jobs. So we were trying to do grow this business on the side of those jobs. But what really changed our, the whole sort of dynamic um, and plans really and accelerated the business to where we are is that we've got, we got made for, we were both furloughed. So then we could, we had the security of, of that, that income um, whilst being able to work full time on a business. That was the real deal breaker here. Yeah. That, that was an absolute blessing. <laughs> mm. And that just demonstrates, doesn't it? That just demonstrates how easy, oh, sorry, how not easy, you know, um, sourcing is because that's the only way we could have made it work. And there's and there's two of you, so it took two of you kind of going almost full time there or having a lot more f- time to do it for it to kind of go to that level. And, you know, a question for both of you, I suppose, Dan, you, you said it is difficult, like it is hard. I, is there anything in particular that makes deal sourcing hard or is it a combination of a few factors? It's, it's, it's a good question. I think, I think it's very hard to get, to get a good level of a good deal of the, of the line and uh, secured. I think it's not, it's not as easy as just plucking something out right move. You know, you, if you want to be a good deal, you know, if you want to be a good deal source and provide quality, quality deals that are worth that money, uh, there's a lot, a lot of time that goes into it. I think, and that's a common misconception that, you know, oh, you're just, pick a property off right move 10 minutes, you know, book a viewing sorted. You know, it's not that, it's not that easy at all. I mean, our conversion rate back, you know, back then was like one in 50 viewings, you know, Yep. which is crazy. Um, and even now, and I mean, now it's, it's even harder now to get deals. Oh, the market's crazy right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're being ultra creative with our approaches and, and, and creating different models, our own hybrid models, uh, we've got a service accommodation brr to service accommodation model um you know we're we're looking at different lead gen techniques as well as different uh, on market off market techniques so you've just got a bit you, and, it's, and it's a constant battle and it's constant imp- and that's one of our core values constant improvement every single day we're like tr- constantly trying to improve every single part of the business and, and you, that's the way you've got to be um it's not something that you know you can. It's not something that you can do as a side hustle and not put much care and attention into it. Yeah, and there's definitely people who who do it without much care and attention. And you know, to be frank, they're total shite because the deals they send are literally, oh, right, move. It's on for a hundred k. Let me get it at ninety seven, but my sourcing fee is three k. That'll work. And you're like, mm, bruv, listen, like, you know, th- that's, not, <laughs> that's not how it works. And it's unfortunate because, you know, they give sources uh, a kind of tricky or, or bad name even because so many people do it without the care and attention that you should be doing it with, right? And I think it's evident in the deals, right? I think it, it's pure and simple, you know. If you're doing the work, if you're securing good deals, then, you know, people will see that in your deals. And that 50 to 1 ratio... I'd say that's, and you know, would you agree that for a BRR, that's pretty, or it was pretty normal to be doing that? Yeah, I would say that's probably quite, uh, quite low, really. I, I mean, I've heard higher than that. Yeah, and I mean, that's what people are paying for, right? Is that I can sit here on my ass and never leave the house, and you could be doing fifty viewings, but I'm paying for the fact that you've done forty nine and we've got one secured, and I think people miss that. Um, and I think I missed that as well when I'm kind of speaking to sources because all you see is one deal presented. Oh, great! You got a deal. You don't see the 49 others you've you've kind of gone through to to get there. Um, Jess, I think you said something earlier about get the deals and the investors will come. Another common question I get from people starting out is, well, what do I do? Do I go and find some deals but have no one to buy them, or do I find people but then have no deals to give them? So, what's your thoughts on that kind of circle? I think, um, yeah, it's a really difficult one, like that chicken and egg thing. I do think that if you get the deals, you'll be able to find investors because the, it's the deals and the supply of deals that's 
you know, the more restricted um, element, the investors, there's hundreds, thousands of them. So if you've got a good deal, you can sell it. I'm not saying it's easy to sell or to find those investors, but finding a good deal is much harder than getting a set of investors. Um, And, you know, we've obviously worked really hard over the last year on and been really strategic again on our marketing and our branding purposefully in order to grow our um, set of um, investor contacts and our relationships. And and we have done a lot of work on that. But ultimately, if if you can get a good deal, you'll be able to, you know, reach out to people you know, there's so many avenues now on social media and so many platforms to be able to, you know, sell a sell a deal. Um, then that for me that needs that would needs to be people's focus if they're but, but if they're starting out in deal sourcing. To caveat that as well, we've we've definitely had moments where we've we've had loads of deals, no investors, loads of investors, no deals. You know, and I think they can they can vary. Think, did, I think Jez is right. Hundred percent deals are more important, but I, I think as well, yeah. If you if you struck for time and yeah, and you literally you've got to do the eighty twenty principle and spend, you know, that finite amount of time on something, then yeah, it'd be deals. But I think as well, if you if you can have a balance, you know, because you, it's okay to post something on a on a group and get loads of people interested. There'll be loads of tire kickers in there. You know, you need to qualify them. You need to nourish that relationship and you need to have some steady processes to capturing, um, capturing those investors, building those relationships so that then it's not so time intensive to sell those deals. You know, you want it to, because that, because you'll end up spending more time trying to sell them. Um, I think, and I think, yeah, it's, it's getting both of them in tandem and building them up that way. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And I think, you know, when people, you know, when you're buying property, people say the same thing. Do you get the investor first? Do you get the deal? And it's it's kind of like both. But, you know, Jed, you made a really good point there that the deals are not in abundance. But people with money who want to buy it are, are absolutely in abundance. If you post a certain deal with a certain return on Facebook right now, by the time we end this podcast... <laughs> you will have like 20 people wanting the deal so yeah that that's kind of a a good way of putting it and i think a really good way of like summarizing as well the kind of balance between the two now if well, I'm, I'm thinking of the perspective from someone who's new to it so when you have the deal secured right offer accepted agent says it's with you obviously there's gonna like the agent wants it and so does the seller with someone in legals yesterday like what happened like i suppose the question is how do you balance getting the deal having offer accepted finding an investor in enough time making sure they're actually good for it and then getting it set up like how do you manage that whole thing in my head it's like it's one big mess i'm trying to figure out what is your process for putting all those random bits together into one smooth line there's a multitude of things i think streamlined process of getting you know gauging with the agent, what what the kind of sweet spot is. Um, and I think building relationships with those agents for them to actually be able to tell you what what will be accepted and, and what's uh, what, what the vendor would likely take it off the market for. And then it's lining up the investor um, prior to that and getting all your ducks in a row so that you can go, go through that process quite streamlined. Um, but I think it's definitely predicated on relationships with agents and understanding, you know, understanding where they're at, understanding what your offer is. I mean, if you're offering 20 grand less than asking or 30 grand less than asking, they're just going to laugh at you down the phone, you know, especially at the moment. So you need to have your process down to be able to find the right properties, to know which ones are, are um, which know which ones where you can offer a decent amount for. And, have those relationships um, set up where you can get stuff secured quickly, get the investor lined up and make it quite a, quite a nice streamlined process. Um, but it does take time and it, it, you know, you need to write out and map out the different levels and who's involved and what's people's roles. And is it one person doing it? Is it two people doing it? How do you make it streamlined? You know, what every time you do it, you'll learn and more and more you'll get better and streamlined and it becomes, I mean, still to this day, sometimes it's not streamlined, but um, it's part and parcel of them being so many moving elements, but 
um that would be my the best advice that i could give um i think we've 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 it's an area we've really struggled with actually because it's a really it is as you said Tej, it's a really tricky area you know we we've tried a few different ways of doing it um and as dan said the way that we're now doing it is mostly gauging what they would accept and then finding the investor to then put in the offer to get accepted um we at the beginning we were essentially getting the offer accepted in our name with our proof of funds and then swapping it out and then we tried uh the other method of getting the offer accepted and then holding essentially you know holding off the agent and getting a client over the line as fast as possible but that's the the tricky bit of that is is if it takes a bit longer to get a client confirmed for whatever reason then you start to piss off agents yeah i think you know we've done we've done 62 deals and it's still not still not streamlined to, to the absolute perfection you know and even for us every day we're learning and every day we're adapting and changing things in the business and i think i, I know people that do do all three all three ways of, of selling the deal and i know that, that they do them all quite successfully so I, it, for us that works the best that, that works the best for us in terms of our staff um but yeah i think I, I think i think definitely don't get the offer accepted and then try and find a buyer and hold them off because that de- that's detrimental to the relationship with the agent which is fundamental in my eyes um but yeah it depends on you it depends on your setup really as well Mm. yeah you know what the kind of swapping in and out that's something i've definitely heard like every sourcer does it's like a rite of passage and everyone kind of has to do that at some point which it is what it is agent gets paid i mean everyone's happy you know no one can can complain too much about that now you know i suppose if we go a step back one of you mentioned earlier about like kind of pre-qualifying investors and having relationships with them so We've kind of touched on the the deal side of it, but with investors, like if I was an investor and I said, I saw you posting online and I said, uh, yeah, I want want deals. Is there a process or questionnaire that I have to go through? Is there proof of funds I have to show? Like to what extent would you pre-qualify me as an investor before I even get sent your stuff? We have a, our qualifying process is really that we would ideally um, have a conversation with uh, either on the phone or on Zoom with the investors first, um, and that's for many reasons. But that is is partly to qualify. It is also to understand their requirements, um, to see what they're looking for, to understand and better understand their pain points, but also to really um, build that relationship with them, which is obviously crucial. And it's just an extra touch point. And as we know. Um, you know, speaking to someone face to face, start building that relationship is is really crucial. And you know, we've seen that pay off for the people that we. It's rare that we sell a deal and it won't be someone um, that we've not spoken to before. Um, so that that acts as uh, not just a qualification, but also yeah, that that kind of touch point. Um, and then yeah, obviously as part of that. Then to get to the next stage, we would need to see all of their kind of ID documents and proof of funds and and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, as you know, we've got obviously compliance that we need to um, fulfill in terms for anti-money laundering. So that's really important that we get all of that. But it's also important that you know we've we've had it. For example, when we haven't had one piece of documentation from an investor and we've lost the deal, so we've been like we've. You know, we've been holding off the agent and the agent then has gone with someone else because, um, and it happened one time, I think, because we had two, um, we had a client who there was two directors to his limited company. And I think we only had one set of ID, but you need two to put the offer forward. And then we lost out because we didn't have it fast enough and we just got gazumped. Um, so that qualification is really important to to actually make the the investor in a position to move forward. You know what? That is painful because it's such a like basic document. It's like you are asking for their tax record from 1997. You're asking for the bleeding ID. So that is like, and then, and again, I think people, what people don't realize is I'm sure it's fine and it was fine, but that relationship with that agent, especially if it's one of your first deals with them, I mean, that's, 
yes, you you know, got Gazam, someone else, you know, so they're not bothered, they're still getting paid, but it does definitely, you know, it can impact your relationship with that agent. Obviously the the investor doesn't care, to put it bluntly, but for you on your end, yeah, it really highlights the importance of of doing that DD before. Now, I want people to get maybe an understanding of the numbers here in terms of like so let's say you had a thousand investors on your like mailing list, right? Let's a thousand investors. What sort of percentage would you expect or should people expect of that number or any number to kind of actively be, you know, offering or buying deals off you? Like, is it the majority of them that are like, hey, I want this deal? Or is it sort of the usual, I don't know, smaller amount? I would say like 5%. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, 5 to 10%, yeah. Wow. Weathered sources, the experience of sources. I mean, I... <laughs> I, I can I mean in my, in my head I said 10%. So yeah, I mean I can I, I can definitely see that. And when it comes to dealing with investors, would you say that it's straightforward because the ones that do want deals, the ones who actually would engage with you are quite serious and know what they're doing or do you think there's a battle and a challenge on the investor side as well? There's a lot of ex- there is a few experienced investors that co- that come our way. I think um the summer it's a difficult one it's a difficult one i don't really know how to answer that one but Jazzy got any input? it's certainly it's certainly not easy i mean it's certainly not easy to um to always you know get get deals over the line um you know as as we said you know if we've got five percent of our investors who are who are interested in deals then um yeah it's kind of a, a quite a low low bar really I mean, would you say that investors come to you and are like, hey, I want all money out deals, including your fee. Thanks. There's a huge amount of ridiculous demands in terms of um, in, in terms of their requirements and, and criteria. I mean, you know, all, all of these training courses that are teaching uh, 25% plus no money left in uh, are just a, a complete nonsense. And I always say this to investors because what what um, and it really annoys me, as you can tell, I'm getting kind of riled up here. But um, it it just really annoys me because what they're missing is the fact that they're coming to a sourcing company and we've got fees. So you can't expect no money left in deals if you're paying a sourcing company, because essentially that deal then needs to be paying. If that was just a deal without the sourcing, that needs to be making you an actual profit and paying you back money. And those 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 are just unicorn deals that don't exist. Um, or they exist in one in a, a in one in a hundred. So, you know, and I, I, you know, we've there's quite a few people that, or quite a few clients that we've had come across, you know, our books in the last sort of year, and they have ridiculous like um, demands in terms of their criteria. And what happens is because of their their really high bar, they don't then buy any deals. Yeah. I think I think the difficulty the, the reason why I was finding it difficult to answer that question is because we we get we get investors that have got mi- an, over a million in the bank and they you know they, they don't buy a deal you know <laughs> and then you get people that have you know 40 50 grand and they move they move very quickly and they're very much um committed to 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 buying a, a deal that they say they're going to buy so I think it's really difficult understanding you know, having proof of funds and being an experienced investor, I don't, I don't believe that's um, a differentiator between someone who's a hot client and a cold client. I think, I think it's it's predicated on again the relationship with that investor and understanding, and them and them showing that they're committed. You know, I mean, we get people that contact us on a daily basis, almost you know naturally progressed kind of friendship in a way, and those and those are our closest investors that move on most of the most of our deals you know we would say it's a very very small handful that actually move on the majority of our deals um and, and a related question to what i was saying as well and i I, tell you, I don't know if you've got an answer to this but like why is there this focus on 20 percent as a margin it's like it's such it's like a sacred bar that that but i don't know the reason for it well, what is it the reason is because I think in property development circles, people look for the public for 25% plus. 
So I, I think it maybe comes from the general chatter of, hey, you know, when people post stuff, I look for 25%, 20% minimum, and then it filters across to all levels. That's what I first heard of it. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's like a, uh, there's not like a particular reason, I suppose. It's just, I don't know, maybe it's one of those things in property that's just accepted as this is a good amount because in reality it'll probably end up being 17% when shit goes wrong. The interesting thing about it is you could have X amount of money in the bank. You could have these goals that you set yourself for a year's time. If you're setting the bar high in times like right now in this current market with 5% uh, 5 mortgages with the stamp duty haven, with all the craziness that's gone on from lockdown, the pent up demand, you know, you're not going to get 25%. We're not seeing 25% deals ever. You know, unless they're like service accommodation or maybe social housing deals, which are more complex and different. Um, and, and it's like, you know, some some investors won't move until they, they get this kind of golden deal. And it's like, do you not see lost time as lost opportunity? Like, you know, I've, I've, I've some some investors that we know that haven't moved, didn't move on a property last year because they were, they were anticipating the, the market to crash. Now, that to me is a year of lost opportunity. Because the market's worse now, even more of a boom now than it was, you know, uh, eight months ago, six, you know, six to eight months ago. And it's like, how much opportunity have you lost in that time? And it's the same thing for like having these high goals. Um, if you're planning on getting five properties, it's better to get five properties at 18% ROI than get one property or zero properties at, you know, 25%. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I think opportunity cost, especially given capital appreciation in the mix as well, is something that, yeah, most of us probably don't think about. Um, maybe because it's not tangible, maybe because we're caught up in, in these figures, you know, the 20%, 30 whatever it is, that it just doesn't kind of work. And I think, yeah, that's definitely something frustrating to work with. And I suppose, you know, it's similar to when people want to invest with you or, or kind of joint venture and they want some ridiculous interest rate on it. And you just think, but where else are you going to get that? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so, you know, if we, if we look at the kind of sourcing journey, um, did you say that you've done 62 deals? Yeah. Yeah. In what time period? 12 months now, really. Is it over twelve? Well, we we because we obviously it took us a while. I mean, we started working together in like November two thousand nineteen, and then yeah, we obviously with a few months to sell that first deal. So it's around kind of twelve months now. So yeah, it's been sixty two in like yeah. That is prolific. That is amazing, lads. Well done. I mean, that is that's yeah. That's getting me tired just thinking about it. Um. So I you know uh, ah another common question people ask is. Before I get into actual deal sourcing, I close off with that. Is these investors? I know the answer to this, and you know, I see it every day. Um, how do you find investors? And then when you tell us, you know, like how and where to find them, could you give us tips on the kind of things that you say or do that really attract, you know, investors to you? All about social media for me. You know, I think. Well, all of our investors are from social media, pretty much. Um, some are from referrals and bits and bobs, but yeah, predominantly all from social media. And I think there's yeah, there's definitely something I want to say about that because when I first when, when we when I first started actually posting these groups and how I met Jez and I, I, for ages I remember having such a blocker to get going. I was thinking, I, you know, I don't have loads of experience in property. You know, I don't know as much as ex, you know, these people that are, that are doing multiple projects that are doing HMOs that are doing developments. And I just, I had a bit of a blocker in terms of, I was, I was worried that people would just think I'm a bit of a nobody when, you know, when I, when I, if I jumped on a live or if I did a post. And I think the, for me, I was just, I just thought, just get yourself out there, just do it. Just don't let that negative, you know, those negative blockers um, stop me from getting there and get myself out there. And I think, I what I did was I used my architectural experience to get my foot in the door. You know, I just gave as much value as I could. And obviously, I work with developers on a, on a, a on a daily basis at the time. And I was writing my posts. I, was t I took the bus to work, um, sold my car, took the bus to work, um, to, to, and I did all this to, to get a pro 
get my first property and I um yeah I, I wrote my posts every day and then I'd do a live just outside the building uh, or a video just outside the building of the office before I went into the office now I know that doesn't sound like a lot but you calculate an hour there an hour back maybe two 10 minute videos outside of work that's two hours of content creation that's two videos a day if you did that five times a week you you and you know and you use the content to uh, uh, with what you do as a job or it might be mindset it might be an experience that you've had with your you know with with your family or your friends that might be inspiring it can be anything it doesn't have to be property related and that's something that really started me uh, and started I started to build my network from that people actually started to see what I did and what I posted as valuable um and I wish I'd have done it sooner really I really did um and I think I think yeah I think just honestly get yourself out there don't let things block you. And even if you're new to property, there's, there's, you know, you don't have loads of experience. There's lots of things that you can talk about. Um, and that, that is one of my biggest things. Um, Jez, have you got any input? Well, I, I would say that again, we, you know, we've been fairly sort of planned and strategic on that. You know, that's been a, a conscious decision to really, I suppose, you know, Dan was obviously very happy to be at the forefront of our, um, I suppose, brand. Um, so, you know, on two fronts, we've, you know, we've really attacked sort of marketing. So from Dan's perspective, obviously, he's out there constantly and prolifically and building his sort of personal brand. And then secondly, we very much, and we, you know, we were very conscious of this. And I know you, you referenced it earlier, like the pink and the, you know, we've been very conscious about actually creating a property brand as well. Um, that has obviously helped us on, on that front, creating what feels, look and feels like a modern, young, exciting company. Mm. So the, 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 those two things together have really propelled our business forward. And now people just come to us. Before it was a lot. There was a lot of you know having to do you know reaching out to people that are you know are commenting. But now it's people just come to us, and you know we've got a whole like system set up when people can just book calls in with us, um, for that qualification, uh, and you know, and people just regularly doing that. So, yes. it, well, I think- as I say, we've been very strategic on on those fronts of of just really pushing our. Well, Dan's personal brand more than mine. I, I get less time than him to do that. I mean, that is his sort of focus. And then, obviously, yeah, from a business perspective, having this, this very much brand focus on social media platforms, and in order to make us stand out, really. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's testing things. You know, I mean, that's why I explained about what my architectural background is because I, I would just test. We're just testing different content and how 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 to get the best re, uh, reactions how to get the best algorithm how to get people to reach out to you and also we we had a, a whole strategy session on who's our ideal client what market are we even you know what market are we targeting and what is the investor we're targeting what's the profile what do they what are they interested in you know where do they eat you know what the, what what are, the, what are their interests and by doing that you can then reverse engineer and look at how to create value for that individual and create content, which is going to help even more build up that um, engagement and people will reach out to you eventually. um, Like, like Jess said. Yeah. Really good tips. Um, And yet I, you know, I've seen a lot of your posts on Facebook and, and they're really helpful. You know, there's a lot of stuff that people can learn from these posts for free that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily like some of the viewing tips you give and, and some of the things like there's one I really remember like about, I think it was the electrics you posted about or that kind of stuff is, you know, it's not really out there for free. So it is really helpful to people. And of course it shows people that hold on a minute. Yes, they're deal sourcing, but they know what they're looking for, which means if I get a deal from them, they have looked at all of this shit that could go wrong, which, you know, I may not know about as an investor. So I think that's really powerful. And to to close the podcast off, you know, deal sourcing, let's talk about actually finding deals. Now, look, the current market is obviously just absolutely ridiculous. um, But, you know, I suppose, generally speaking, 
Um, any top tips for finding deals, for working with agents, for going D to V? Um, yeah, top tips on that. 100% start building relationships with agents. I just think it's so crucial to, in, in terms of like mar- tough markets like this. And this is, this is something I was saying last night. If you could view 50 properties, right? And this is the 80-20 principle where, you know, if you are looking to deal source and you've got a full-time job, you cannot go on 50 viewings a week or 50 viewings. You probably can do 50 viewings a month, but you'll be, you'll be using up all your weekends, right? What's the 80-20 of that? Well, out of those 50 viewings, you find one that's motivated to accept that pr- that set price that you're looking for, right? Well, why don't you just speak to, if you spoke to that exact agent and they told you, I've got this deal coming up and this this is what they're looking to accept. You've just cut out the, 50, the 49 viewings. And that's that 80-20 where, you know, we get agents coming to us, giving us deals uh, before they even hit the market. You know, this is coming on the market ne- uh, next week um, or this week. We're looking to get, we're looking to get a quick sale. I don't even want to put it up online. I know that we can sell this. Do you want to do you want to sell it to your investors? Yeah, sure. And it's it's done. And um, and I think so. So I think definitely pop in. Remember names. Like remember the little things about people and be personable. Get your personality out there. Just like on Facebook, get per, get personality out there. Add add the agent on LinkedIn and Facebook and and show them you you know put the posts on your profile. That's another thing. Put you do lives on your own profile. A lot of people think, oh, my university friends or my family will see it or this. Forget that. You need to think beyond that. You know, I've never had any abuse from any family or friends because of what I'm, you know, doing posts about property. So that would be my first tip. Um, what else? Yeah, just hit, hit D to V, just direct to vendor. Just we use Facebook ads. We do. We're looking to do different techniques in terms of leafleting and 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 we're testing things out don't be afraid to do that um what else i would say i mean i think a big thing on on you know on everything on all of that especially around um direct to vendor is you know as dan said experiment uh measure and and then evaluate from there you know and i think give, people- it, give it a go for three months yeah I think and see people, what happens, and then people, and then come and then review it, and you know, yeah. And I think people think on. that um, it's a waste of money. You know, like oh well, I've just wasted X amount of money. But it's like no, you've 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 got some doors that, and you've checked the if see which doors open and which doors are shut. Right, you you need to do that. It's R and D. It's it's a, an investment. You've got to invest in your business, right? Because it is a business, and you've got to test out which which works and which doesn't. Because it's good it's different for every different investor's requirements for every different place. You know, there's different techniques that work better than others. So you need to, I would say, get yourself out there. Don't be willing to spend a bit of money and try things. Mm, I like that. I would say one is focus. I would say focus on one particular property strategy to source for, because I think we are, you know, and the, on the early days, it's really easy, especially when, you know, when you're smaller, you just get, you know, you get agents coming to you or opportunities across that are just multiple um, different strategies and are more complicated. And but the thing is, there's um, they're misleading because if you need to then uh, like if you get a HMO that comes across your your door, yes, that's a that's a deal you could potentially sell. But how much time are you going to have to lose to? to get your due diligence right on a, on a HMO, learn all the regs about it and everything, everything like that, or you could get really burnt. So I would say focus, pick a strategy and niche out and focus on that strategy that you then differentiate yourself to like, for example, there's not that many rent to rent sources. Why? I was trying to do rent to rent in London for a while. There's, there's, but there's just not many deal sources looking that are actually that good doing rent to rent. It's like, why isn't there? Like, you could, if someone did that right, there's a huge opportunity there. Um, and then I think the second thing is, don't forget that property is ultimately, and anything sales related is ultimately a numbers game. So if you fail, because if you feel like you're failing because you've not got a deal, but you've only viewed twenty properties that month, well, you've not viewed enough properties. Yeah. 
I agree. Well said. Lads, thank you so much for coming on the TED Talks podcast. If people want to get a hold of you and want to see what you're up to, where's the best place they should go? We've got um, a Facebook group called the uh, Hands-Free Investing Community. Uh, That's pretty much everything that we do. We we just project it onto this group. Uh, It's all about giving value. Uh, like us on, on, on Facebook and Instagram, Cove Properties. We've also got uh, Cove Property Meet, uh, which is a networking event in Newcastle, in city centre in Newcastle, the only, the only networking event in the city centre. The, there's also a Facebook page for that as well. And we have a WhatsApp and a monthly webinar. Yes, yes, and a monthly webinar, which we started uh, fr- from the lockdown, but we're going to continue with that and start the, the uh, physical networking event as well, which should be quite good. And that's about it, I think. Is there anything else, Jess? Can you think of anything else? No, but obviously, if anyone wants to, you know, anyone uh, wants to reach out for us, um, you know, book a call in with us. So we're happy to, you know, help any new deal sources or anyone that needs to needs to learn anything from from us or feels they can learn anything from us. We are, help. I will just interject. We are doing a like a like a learn and learn program where people could learn literally everything that we do. Uh, for a percentage return as well so if you if you've got money that's burning away in the bank and you're looking to learn on some of the topics that we just discussed today please do reach out and we can we can set some set a call up and we're also just still and just yeah our last plug actually we're still um fundraising for um something we did for our first birthday we're fundraising for street zero which is a um, a campaign to end rough sleeping in Newcastle. So we're still um, fundraising for that. If you go to um, bit.ly forward slash co fundraiser, you can still um, donate towards that great cause. Amazing. Lads, thank you so much. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.